Uh, maybe you're with me on this. I watched this show on Amazon called The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Has anyone ever seen that show before? I can't get enough of this show. It's so funny and quirky and eccentric, and it's, it's a delight, I got to tell you. Um, if you've never seen it before, let me just tell you a little bit about The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. It takes place in about the 60s in New York, and Mrs. Maisel, Midge is her name, and she is a, a housewife, and she's very dressed up. She wears the pearls. She's, she's got a very nice life, and one day she just decides that she's going to become a comic. She's going to be a stand-up comic, a woman in the 60s. Her husband cheats on her. They get a divorce, and she just decides, I'm going to use all of this rage, all of these things that are pent up, and I'm going to become a stand-up comic. And so it follows her life sort of as a stand-up comic in the 60s and navigating a life of womanhood and, and being a mother and being a daughter. But one of the interesting aspects of that show is it's seen through the eyes of her father, Abe. And Abe is my favorite character in that whole series. Tony Shalhoub plays the great monk uh, in that great series previously. But Abe is very traditional, and he's very buttoned up. He works at Bell Labs. He's a scientist. He's a mathematician. He likes the world in a certain way. And women are not supposed to do the things that Midge is doing. Women aren't supposed to hang out at nightclubs after midnight. Women are not supposed to be comedians. They're very buttoned up. And so a lot of the dynamics of the show is Abe ignoring what Midge is doing. Abe does not want her doing that and tells her several times. But the transition in Abe is that he's able to then, at the very end of the series, uh, uh, embrace her and be proud of what she's doing and see that she's actually been called to do this, that she's actually doing the thing that she was meant to do. And when we can embrace that in our own lives, when we can watch that transformation happen to other people, it brings us joy. And when we can see other people who have struggled so long to fit into their call, to hear the call that they've decided in their lives. And when that finally falls into place, we can celebrate. There's joy in that. That not only is someone redeemed, not only is someone transformed, but someone is living the life that they were meant to live. And through that transition, through that transformation, a lot of people can grow. And so it's all about learning to embrace that choice. It's all about learning how to embrace that call, that, that God is here in front of us, encouraging us and calling us and motivating us to step forward. And this is what we're going to talk about today. This is the spot that we're landing in Mark. We're reading in Mark chapter 1, and we're going to read just a few verses, verses 14 through 20 in this. And I want to tell you that this is very atypical. I've preached this a couple of times before, and I think I've been doing it wrong uh, because it hasn't fired me up as much as it has today. Uh, so I must be reading it with fresh eyes, which, you know, is a gift from God, is a gift from the Holy Spirit to show up and say, we want you to re- uh, Relook at this. So let's read this from Mark, and I picked a very different translation from this, and there's a specific reason why, and we'll get into that in a little bit. But this is from the Net Bible, which is one of my favorite translations, New English translation. Um, there's 64,000 footnotes in this Bible, just by the way. So if it's dangerous for people like me who have ADHD, where you read and then you, you never get through it. So 
uh, but we won't read the footnotes this morning. Now, after John was imprisoned, Jesus went into Galilee and proclaimed the gospel of God. He said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the gospel. So this is the message of Jesus. As he went along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, Simon's brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will turn you into fishers of people. They left their nets immediately and followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in their boat, mending nets. Immediately, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. This is the call of Jesus. And it's really important in our lives that we understand this story. We understand where Jesus was in his ministry and where these fishermen were in their journey, in their lives. And so we're going to look at the nature of Jesus' call. What, what is it about this call? What is it about what we've just witnessed here? What is it about God standing in front of them and saying, hey, you know what? This is who I am. But here's the thing. Jesus doesn't do that, does he? Jesus doesn't stand in front of them and start preaching. We talked about this last week. Jesus is an unknown quantity at this point. Jesus just shows up on the scene and he says, you know what? Follow me. And actually, the Greek there for follow me is stand behind me, get behind me. It's the same thing that Jesus says to Peter when he rebukes him and says, get behind me, Satan. It's the same word. Get behind me. Follow me. We're going to go and do this thing together. Now, the problem with this passage is that Jesus is so different here than he is, than the Jesus I grew up with in the church that I grew up in. It's two different Jesuses. You know, the Jesus I grew up with, um, he was always very well-mannered. He had encouraging words to say, especially to children. Um, he was kind of a self-help guide. He loved his mother, obeyed his father. He performed these great miracles. Uh, he voted. He paid his taxes. He was an upright, good-standing model citizen. And so in our churches as we grew up, what kind of people did we get? We got people who were well-mannered, loved their mom. They voted. They were very put together. They um, were very decent and orderly. And this was church life. Decent and orderly people doing decent and orderly things. The problem is, this is not the Jesus that we just met. This is not the Jesus who walks into our lives and is orderly and is decent and says, you know what, uh, I see that everything is nice and tidy here, so I'm going to leave you alone. The Jesus we meet in Mark bears little resemblance to this uh, civil Jesus of my childhood. He's not looking for allegiance or amazement. He's looking to turn us around, to shake us up, to make us become fishers for people, adrift in a sea of casual faith or really no faith at all. The Jesus we meet in Mark not only promises to change our lives, he promises to transform them. 
And he's not looking for us to make a decision to follow him eventually, when the time is right, when we have more information, when the economy is better, when the children are older, when we're nearing retirement, when I'm just not so doggone tired all the time. I like my Saturdays and my Sundays free. Jesus is not looking for that. That's not the Jesus we meet in Mark. Our congregations are composed of well-ordered folks who live in well-ordered lives. And for those of us averse to change, the Jesus we meet in Mark might cause some serious indigestion problems. Because without a word of warning, he inserts himself smack into the middle of four ordinary lives just by saying, follow me. He upsets the entire balance, the entire economy of these four men's lives just by standing in front of them and saying, follow me. Now, we might ask ourselves a number of questions at this point. What about the businesses that they left behind? Were none of these men married? Were there no responsibility to wives and children? What about the command to honor your father and mother as James and John leave their father Zebedee just sitting in the boat? What were these four men saying yes to? Why was it more compelling to follow Jesus than it was to stay nicely nestled in their familiar routines? These are reasonable questions, by the way. When we read a passage like this, we're like, this does not make any sense to me. They are reasonable questions to say, don't you have responsibilities? Aren't you supposed to be doing something right now with your lives? Aren't people counting on you? But the problem is Mark doesn't give us any answers to this. He just leaves us with this tension. He leaves us in this moment of saying, Jesus came to these men and said, follow me, and they did. So what does that say about them, and what does that say about Jesus? And I'm not going to give you the answers to these questions, because in the next 16 chapters of Mark, I'm actually going to answer all of these questions for you. I'm going to tell you why Jesus was so compelling. I'm going to tell you why you can walk into someone's life and say, Jesus, come and follow him. Come and stand behind him. Come and get to know him. And I don't have to answer any of your questions, and you'll just know. You'll just know because you'll know his people, and you'll know his love, and you'll know his presence in your life. And we don't need to ask questions, and we don't need to answer questions because Jesus just comes and says, follow me. You know, we're called to a lot of things in our lives. All of these responsibilities that we have, work and play and family and friends, we're called to a lot of things. But a call from Jesus is disruptive. It's transformative. It's reorienting and it's radical. That's how we know it's a call from Jesus. If it doesn't have those four elements, forget about it. It's not of Jesus. It's not of the kingdom of God, it's from this world. Because a call from Jesus is going to be disruptive. It's going to come into our lives and it's going to change things around. It's going to say, you're not going to be comfortable anymore. And a lot of times I, I, I get so frustrated with people because they want Jesus. 
They want him. They want to know him, but they don't want their lives to be changed. And people come to this church and they try us out and they look around the room and they say, this seems like a a good place to come and visit and, and to know God, but when I get around to it, when I have a little bit more free time, I will give what's left over to God. I think church should cost us something. And I'm not just talking about money, but I think it should cost us something in our lives. The act of getting up early, the act of preparing ourselves, the act of giving our best to God on a day when we're so, so tempted just to sleep in. On a day that we're so tempted just to give it to something else, we give it to God. I think that it should cost us something. And I think if we feel disrupted on a Sunday morning, I think that's right where we're supposed to be. But a call from Jesus is transformative. A call from the world doesn't transform our lives because we fit it into a box. And Jesus says, you know what? I want you to follow me because you will be transformed. You will be brand new. And everything that you do, you will have a brand new identity. And a call from Jesus is reorienting because instead of putting these other things at the center of our lives, by the way, we do that with our families, we do that with our work because we crave work, we crave that identity that we get from work. We say, I just have to work a little bit more and it's a badge of honor to say, I worked 16 hours today or I worked 65 hours this week. We have oriented our lives around our job. And what do we have left over? What do we have to show for it? And we've oriented our lives around our families. And we say, this is, our, this is the most important thing I'll do. Almost there. We're, quite, we're not quite there. So we'll say, I'll, I'll orient my life around my spouse. My spouse is the most important thing that I'll, I'll ever have a relationship with. Almost. We're almost there. We're so close. We're so close because when we reorient our lives, we're reorienting with Jesus as the center, as the number one, as the one person who deserves to be at the center. And then everything that we do goes back to Jesus. Everything that we understand, everything that we go about our lives with, Jesus is first, and he's the center. And everything gets reoriented in light of who he is. Our work, our school, our husbands and wives, our friends, our family, all of that stuff is reoriented to understand Jesus as the center. And a call from Jesus is radical. It's not halfway. It's not lukewarm. It's not right in the middle. God calls people to radical change. God calls people to radical lives that we've wandered from. Now, I'm not saying that we have to be on fire. We have to have this passion for God 24-7, that we just have to run around with our head just on fire for God. That would be exhausting. But how much more can we give? If we're truly called by God, how much more 
can we fit in? It forces those who hear it out of their daily preoccupations and into a focus that's solely on this one who bears the kingdom of God. And walking along the Sea of Galilee, and without one word of explanation, Jesus calls out, follow me, first to Peter and Andrew who are casting their nets into the sea, and then to James and John who are mending their nets. He calls, they follow. And the word common to both of those scenes is the word immediately. Immediately Jesus calls, and immediately they follow. Or said it another way, following Jesus involves a fundamental shift in our sense of self and purpose. Our fundamental understanding of who we are and what we do. That when Jesus calls us and we follow him, we've given up everything in our lives. We've given up our identity, we've given up our purpose, and it all becomes Jesus. Stand behind me. Get behind me. I'm going over here. Follow me this way. Christ transforms all of our previous callings in light of the one central calling, which is to follow him. It is Jesus who sets his new disciples into motion, a mission and a ministry, establishing them in salvation and providing new life for them as participants in the kingdom of God. And so we can understand God's call in our lives. There's three main things I think that we look at. First of all, it's a universal. God's call is universal. It's for everyone, regardless of background. There's nothing inherent in these disciples. There's nothing uh, inherent in these, these fishermen that Jesus looks at them and says, okay, yeah, they'll do. They'll, yeah, they've got good skills there. Yeah, yeah, they, oh yeah. There's nothing about them in their background or their status, that Jesus says, you know what? Yeah, they'll make great disciples. It is a universal call. There's nothing inherent in any of us, really, about becoming a Christian, about hearing God's call. There's nothing inherently different about me being called as a pastor. There's nothing inherently different about you being called as a Christian. It's not about who we are. It's about him. And therefore, it is universal. It can, it, it's for everyone regardless. God uses the likes of us, such as we are, sinners as we are, to be witness to Jesus Christ and participate in God's mission and reign in the world. The second thing is it's a personal call. We heard last week that Jesus called out Nathaniel. He knew him. He knows these men. He knows what they are. He sees them and he calls them immediately. And it's not like he shows up and he learns about them and he watches them um, and, and learns that they're good people. He knows them inherently. He knows who they are already. God brings a personal call to our lives. He acknowledges our unique identity. And we don't lose that. Sometimes we think, well, we're giving up ourself to follow Jesus, so I just become Jesus. We don't give up who we are. We just get behind Jesus. And all of that becomes enhanced. It becomes better because we're using it as a central location. We're using it as God has intended us to use it. And a call from God is always transformative. It demands a change, a turning away from the old life. 
When Jesus calls the fishermen, he's not just inviting them to a new job or task. He's inviting them and offering them a new identity. I will make you become fishers of men signifies a transformation from their previous identity as fishermen. And this new identity is centered not on their profession. You see how they were known as fishermen? Well, we're fishermen. That's our identity. It's not centered now on their profession. It's now centered on their relationship with Jesus and his role in, and their role in his mission. It's this transformation of identity. And we don't know the ins and outs of what was involved for those disciples. The point is that their attachment and loyalty to Jesus overtook and transcended their allegiances and connections with the structures of life that had been most significant for them. Jobs and families were left behind in light of the call to this new vocation. The disciples' response led Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously to say that when Christ calls a person, he calls that person to come and die. That's discipleship. That's a response to what Jesus has done in our lives, to come and die. And so when we hear that call, when we hear these universal, this personal, this transformative call in all of our lives, we need to start embracing a right response for that call. We need to start learning what a response to Jesus can look like. Well, first of all, it was immediate, right? They immediately dropped their nets. They immediately stopped fishing and they followed Jesus. James and John left their nets. They left their father. They left their boat. They left their fellow workers. Isn't it interesting that he calls James and John, but he doesn't call the father? And he says it's important that Zebedee stays there and continues fishing while James and John come and follow me. Because he knew that James and John and their passion and their fire they would reach Zebedee anyway. That Zebedee could continue doing what he was called to do. That all of our calls are not the same. All of our churches are different. They look different because they've all been called to different things. And so for us modern Christians, the nets can become symbols for things that we need to leave different aspects of our lives that we need to give up, that we need to relinquish or we need to reorient in order to fully embrace our journey. Like, for example, material possessions and wealth. Those nets represented the livelihood of the fishermen. But it was also their wealth. It's how they made money. It was their economy. It was their jobs. And they walked away from that. Chasing wealth is not always the best idea. And again, career and ambitions in your professional lives. There's nothing inherently wrong with that ambition, but if it overshadows your commitment to faith and family and serving others, then it has to be let go. You have to walk away from it. And our net could represent maybe our personal comfort and safety our comfort zones and security that we have. That when Jesus calls that we maybe have to step out of our comfort zone. Following Christ involves stepping out on our own and trusting God's provision and guidance. 
that these guys gave up their livelihoods and their security and they felt safe there. But Jesus says, if you follow me, I'll provide. It might mean we give up our habits and behaviors. It might include unhealthy relationships and addictions or any form of behaviors that impede our spiritual growth, our spiritual fire, our radicalness, our transformativeness. It might mean we give up our cultural or social expectations. Sometimes there are expectations on us that are in conflict with a Christian life. It means giving up our preconceived ideas and beliefs. It means giving up our fear and our doubt. It means giving up sometimes personal relationships. Following Jesus involves a fundamental shift in one's sense of self and purpose. Now, the kind of fishing that was envisioned here was net fishing, not line fishing, as maybe we've heard in the past. It involves this circular net, and on the edges of the net, there are these weights. So as they drop it off the boat, the weights come down and pull the net as it comes down. And the occupation of fishermen was very labor-intensive. So the idea of just using a lure and a line is very foreign to this text. Rather, the imagery of fishermen would involve much strain, long hours, and often little results. Our modern-day minds go directly to fishing, casting out the line, relaxing. This is not the fishing that Jesus had in mind. The fishing was a way of life. Jesus' point may have been one or more of the following, the strenuousness of evangelism, the work ethic that it required, the persistence and the dedication to the, ta to the task, often in spite of minimal results, the infinite value of actually getting a catch. And the problem is, is that our fishing, the one that we think of, uses lures and live bait. It, it includes trickery. It includes deception. Come here and, and get the worm. We want to entice you. And now I got you and I can snag you up and you're mine now. And I can hold you up and take a picture and sometimes I'll eat you or sometimes I'll throw you back, depending on how I feel. This is deception. And this is not what we're talking about. The biblical casting of nets is different. It's straightforward. It's totally encompassing. And it is without deceit. If we go to people and say, I'm going to dangle this in front of your face and entice you to come to church, it's never going to work. It's never going to work because that's deception, that's trickery. And so given that Jesus introduces the analogy of catching fish and catching people, can we make something of the reminder here that fishing involves more than the act of casting nets and pulling in the haul? There are also preparations. There's mending of the nets. There's repairing the tools that are bound to be damaged and worn in the rough seas between the hunter and hunted and the ever-changing environment in which it's played out. You can't always be fishing, even if that's your favorite part of the whole thing. And so there are times that we need to be in the word and prayer and preparing ourselves so that when 
we are casting out, when we are encompassing our lives, when we're telling people about the transformation of Jesus, we're ready. We don't catch people off guard. We don't catch ourselves off guard because everything is ready to go. We stay ready so we don't have to get ready. I'm often astonished by how many people see following Jesus as optional equipment in life, like buying an extended warranty on the car. But yes, I'd like to purchase the Christian option just in case there's something that goes wrong. Then I'll be covered. Just an extra layer of protection. And this is not the Jesus we meet in Mark. Mark introduces us to a Jesus who is not interested in our occasional curiosity or our arm's length respect. He is interested in claiming and transforming our lives immediately. Immediately I call you, immediately you follow. There is a sense of we're going to do this over time and we're going to get better and better and better at this. But Jesus wants a response now. He wants an immediate response. And if people are just kind of like, hmm, it's interesting. I'll come and check it out eventually. And we'll see if this is a good fit. I'm sorry. But that's not the Jesus we see here. Mark's Jesus never leaves us as he, is, as he, found, as he finds us. He isn't looking for and will not settle for casual curiosity or convenient compliance. This Jesus wants nothing less than our complete attention. This Jesus is ready to lead us into a whole new life. And so the one thing that we learned from Mark is that Jesus has a new vocation in mind for these four fishers. And now we would be wise to listen to pastor and author Ted Smith, who argues that verse 17 should not be translated, follow me and I will make you fish for people. This makes it sound as if fishing is a task. The better translation receiving, receives fishing for people as a new identity. A literal translation might read, follow me and I will make you become fishers for people. And there's a world of difference between I will make you fish and I will make you to become fishers. I will make you fish gives us one more activity to work into our calendars. Fish for people. How about every fourth Monday? Can anyone else do the fourth Monday? That would be good. We could go out and fish for people then. But I will make you to become fishers. That's promising a whole new life. Jesus doesn't leave it there. He doesn't say, I'm going to teach you to fish in a different way. He says, you will become fishers. And here's how our rightful responses should look. First of all, there's a promptness to it. We respond to God's call without delay. Without taking two steps forward and one step back without coming up with another excuse, another way to delay the inevitable. God always gets his way, by the way. I don't know if you've noticed this in your life. And so you can push it off for a little bit. And you can come up with another excuse. You can put another thing in your calendar. 
God gets what he wants. And he's called you to do it, or if you don't want to do it, someone else will do it. Someone will be there to answer the call of Jesus' mission. But there's also a totality, a willingness to give up everything for the sake of following Christ. And this is where my heart just breaks for our world today. Because our churches are filled with people who are half in and half out, who want to do this Sunday thing part-time, who want to follow Jesus but also follow the world, who don't want to know what it's like to abandon everything and see Jesus in every aspect of your life. To say, God, yes, I'm all in. I'm standing behind you and where you go, I go. I will follow you in every total way. We don't want to do this lukewarm. We don't want to do this as a way that reminds people that Christianity is just another thing we have to do, another checkbox. It is a new way of life. But finally, we need to mention this, that a response from Jesus always involves trust. A response to the call of God always involves trust. God called me to plant this church, and I said, God, I don't think I can do that. I don't think I can step out on my own. I don't think I can take a group of people and do this. But it took an act of trust. It took an act of trust when all around me, pastors were leaving. Pastors were getting burnt out. Families were disintegrating because the church had abused them. And it took an act of trust to look at the church where there were abuses of power and there were abuses of women and there were abuses of trust of people in the church. And it took an act of trust for me to say, yes, God, I will become a pastor and I will lead a church that you've called me to in spite of what I see. And in spite of the fact that I probably could go and get a job that would pay and would feel good and would be a comfortable, established church. In spite of that, God, I will step out in trust and I will totally reframe my life around what it is you've called me to. And I will give up my identity as pastor and as husband and I will be son of God. And I will make you central in my life so that this church doesn't feel like another checkbox. That planting a church and, and leading a church doesn't feel like another thing. But it feels like an extension already of the God that I'm serving. Of the centrality of Jesus in my life. And if there's one thing that I can get you to understand today, if there's one thing that you can take away from this, it's that I want you to feel that same thing. I want you to come into a church that respects the centrality of Jesus in your life, that gets you to want Jesus to be center in your life, not to make this church the center of your life, but to make Jesus the center of your life. And that everything we do here makes more sense when Jesus is there, standing totally by himself, he has called and we have listened.
Examine where God is calling you in your life. Examine where God has dropped you off in your life. He's put you here for a reason. You weren't born in the 1800s. You were born now. And you live in this house, not that other one. Why is that? What is Jesus calling you to? And is your response immediate? Is it total? Is it trustful? You need to start taking steps to align yourself to the call in God's life that God has given to you. He's placed you there for a reason. Following Jesus involves a fundamental shift in our sense of self and purpose. I would encourage you this morning to be responsive to that. Be sensitive to where God is calling you. It's different than the way the world calls.